certainly is a great thing that each of us have been given the privilege of assembling this afternoon. We're thankful that God has allowed us the health to do so and this comfortable place that we could come together and meet. Certainly we're thankful for each and every person that's here, and I hope that each of us can at least be encouraged, perhaps by consideration of a lesson I've entitled, Jesus Family Tree. As I begin that lesson, this next slide will, I hope, set before each of us at least some interesting ideas. It may be that there's somebody in your family, it may be you, who takes a great interest in genealogy. Many families do have someone like that who've traced that particular family back maybe hundreds of years. Maybe you even know when ancestors came over from Europe. Or perhaps you're aware of various and sundry great events that happened in, in, the, in the distant past. I would have to say many families do have at least some knowledge of that information due to a particular person who is greatly interested in, 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 that, in that set of information. But I would say that as you develop that, and if you do happen to know that about your family, it's true that there may well be some people in your family's history who are honest, upstanding, noteworthy, influential, who had a dramatic impact for good among many people that knew them. But on the other hand, it could well be, and perhaps I suspect most of us have some point in our family history where there was somebody who really wasn't known for being very good. Maybe this individual was, quite frankly, a criminal. Maybe this person was known as a rather morally suspect person. Maybe this person wasn't really thought of very much by anybody. I say all of that to say we have something in the Bible about Jesus' family history. Let's study about it at the beginning part of the lesson. And as we close the lesson, we will extract a few lessons from it that I think will be very meaningful to each of us as well. First of all, let's look at the details. In Matthew chapter 1, James read just a moment ago, verses 1 and 17, there's a number of verses in between those two, of course. And if I could draw your attention to the slide on the wall behind me, it's in front of you, but I've listed for you each of the names that are presented on the page out of Matthew chapter 1. You'll begin to notice a few of them, and they proceed like this. Verse number 1 leaves us no doubt. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. We are being given information about the ancestral history of Jesus. As you and I look at the names that are herein presented, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zara of Thamar. And Phares begat Esram. And Esram begat Aram. And Aram begat Amenadab. And Amenadab begat Naasan. And Naasan begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa. And Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. And Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Ahaz begat Ezekias. 
And Ezekiel begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Amon, and Amon begat Josias. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were scattered away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Atzor. And Atzor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud. And Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now those names, no doubt, are such that some of them we recognize. And I would be quick to say that, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew. And so although some of them may look at least vaguely familiar, we perhaps know the Old Testament name even better. And I'll try to point some of them out during the course of the lesson this evening. I would ask you to note, because we'll notice it later in the lesson, I have put some names in boldface type. Could I draw your attention to Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? I do that again for reasons that shall become a bit clearer later in the lesson tonight. But otherwise, as you revisit the particular listing, notice that Matthew calls our attention to Abraham, in essence, as the one out of whom he traces to the very occurrence of Jesus. Verse number 2, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and immediately is summed up before our thinking much of the details of the books of Genesis and Exodus. We remember so well those characters, the great efforts they presented, Sometimes we are brought face to face with their faults and failures, but they are here recorded forevermore in the very lineage of Jesus. As you proceed through the list, many of those individuals, as I mentioned a moment ago, you and I know them better by the explicit names of the Old Testament. I'll try to point out a few of those here in just a moment, but on the slide I have listed Rehoboam, for example, as the son of Solomon, if I could ask you to notice, verse 7 lists it Roboam. Now, that's the same person. Roboam here is the Rehoboam of the, book of, of the book of 1 Kings. And then you'll furthermore notice that Josaphat, now I have listed that one exactly as it's listed here. We know him better in the Old Testament as Jehoshaphat. I point those out for the following reason. Let's look at the next slide. Could I ask you to notice in that listing of individuals, there are some who were overwhelmingly noted for the good of their life. And by that I mean they were dedicated to godliness. They chose regardless of that which culture presented around them. They were determined to do what God said was right. I have simply called them the good. It is for that reason I'd like to call your attention to three of the list. Why don't we do that by first noting something about Asa. And we'll do that in the wording of 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Please be turning back with me to 2 Chronicles 14. And let's look at a statement or two about the life of the man named Asa. I'll give you a moment to turn to that page. But in 2 Chronicles 14, 
Remember, the individuals listed here in Matthew chapter 1 were historical figures. They weren't made up. They weren't figments of anybody's imagination. There literally was a man named Asa. I would point out from time to time, there are individuals who will cast a doubt on the lineage of Jesus. Do you really mean to tell me, they might say, that there was a man who literally walked on earth and could work miracles? He could literally walk on water? And you and I would be quick to say, absolutely there was a man like that. And I'll tell you what, how convinced we are. Let me tell you about his dad and his granddad and his great-granddad. And we can trace him through 76 generations all the way back to Adam. Now may I say, you can't make that up. Jesus literally descended through individuals and this listing mentions a man named Asa. In 2 Kings 14, let's notice verses 2 and following. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange gods in the high places and broke down the images and cast down the groves and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. Also he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images and the kingdom was quiet before him. I hope we're all impressed a bit with Asa. Here was a man, now earlier, before he became, of course, the leader, there were those who made choices to follow idolatry. And there were those who encouraged among the people of Israel, following after groves and following after various and sundry idolatrous altars. And yet when Asa became the king, you also notice in verse 2, he did what was good, he did what was right, and that included this, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3. He took away the altars of the strange gods, the high places, he broke down the images, and then he gave a commandment. If you like to mark things in your Bible, may I ask you to note verse 4. The king gave a command. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. Here was a king who commanded everybody to worship God. Don't you wish we had a leader like that today? Don't you wish perpetually we would have somebody in office who felt like that? Perhaps the point is Asa, in his occupation and in his influence, he gave commandment to follow after the God of heaven. Perhaps note also this. In the midst of all these things he did, breaking down the images, tearing down the altars, there may have been people in his family who in fact were given to that sort of thing. That didn't stop Asa. Even if his great uncle liked doing that, it didn't stop Asa from tearing down every one of them. We've got to love God more than we love family when family does what's not right. May we say this on the slide. I've asked you to notice we should be so impressed with Asa. He was in the lineage of Jesus. Look at another one. Besides him, there's one that the list calls Ezekiel. The Old Testament knows him as Hezekiah. Our lady studied him in some detail on the last ladies' class. And in 2 Chronicles, chapters 28 and following, much about this man is listed. 
Again, we'll not read anywhere near all of that set of chapters, but could I direct your attention to just a few of the verses? Second Chronicles, chapters 28 and following speak much about the life and times of Hezekiah. In chapter 29, verse number 2, the following statement is found. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together unto the east street and said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites. Sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. The facts of the matter are these. Again, the predecessors of Hezekiah had been rather wicked people. They had encouraged idolatry. In fact, the temple itself had been turned into a basically a place of rubbish. There was much filthiness in it. Did you note this? On the first day he took office, he set about repairing that temple. He opened the doors and gave the Levites the commandment, clean out that filthiness. We want to reinstitute and reestablish the proper worship of God. May we again be impressed with the choice that Hezekiah had made. On the slide, I merely ask you to notice, he really labored greatly to reinstitute Faithful and proper worship of God. What about a third element, a third member of the list? This time, the one called Josias. The Old Testament knows him as Josiah. Turn over a couple of chapters in Second Chronicles this time. Let's come to chapters 34 and 35. In the first two verses of Second Chronicles 34, the following statement is found. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. One more time, please appreciate here Josiah was young. He was only age eight when he took office. Now, we learn a little bit later that when he reached age 16, which was still very young, at least in the mind of many, he made some powerful decrees that all of this idolatry and all of these poor choices were going to be abundantly and dramatically removed. And that's what he did. That was the occasion when the book of the law was found in the temple, and they read it before him. And he fell on his face prostrate, wrenching his clothes, knowing that what had just been read, they had not kept. Josiah had a tender heart, and he wanted to serve God. He wanted to do what's right. May I say to you that in light of all of these so far, what could fairly be said about these three? All three were good. All three were godly. All three were notable influences in a very vivid way to those about them. But let's observe this, and it's the statement that closes that slide. The fact that those three were good and faithful did not mean Jesus had to be. The fact that those three made their choices to serve God did not mean that the Lord would have to be. For that reason, the next slide will elaborate on that point. 
we've looked at the good. What about the bad? In that same listing in Matthew chapter 1, there's also a number of other names who were not nearly as good as these three, who were not nearly as faithful, and who certainly were not as committed to God. Case in point, let's look at the one the text calls Joram. The Old Testament knows him as Jehoram. Maybe we're very familiar with him. Would you revisit with me 2 Chronicles 21? I believe you may be shocked if you hadn't thought about Jehoram in a while. Let me begin reading in verse 1 of that chapter and listen to what Joram was like. What kind of person was he? Now Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram his son reigned in his stead. And he had brethren, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah and Jehiel and Zechariah and Azariah and Michael and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and of gold and of precious things and fenced cities in Judah. But the kingdom he gave to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with the sword and divers also of the princes of Israel. And we have read enough. Again, here's an individual who was in the very descendancy, or I should say the ancestry of Jesus. And did you notice? He had six brothers, all these sons of Jehoshaphat. The oldest was a man named Jehoram, and when the time came he took office, he strengthened himself, the text says, and he killed every one of his brothers. He killed every one of them. And not only they, but those princes of Israel, Jehoram killed them. Cold-blooded murder. And yet he is one of the ancestors of Jesus. Keeping that in mind, look at the next one. Not only could we mention Jehoram, what about the one known as Achaz? The Old Testament knows him as Ahaz. Would you turn with me to Second Chronicles 28? Look at what is said about that gentleman, beginning again early in that chapter. Second Chronicles 28, I'll start reading in verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images for Balaam. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Again, may I say we've read enough. Here was a man named Ahaz who was privileged by God to sit on the throne over his own people. You notice, though, he did not what was right. Rather, he chose the pathway of evil. He did what was wrong. Case in point, look at what he did. Verse number 3. He burned incense in the valley of Hinnom. Now you and I from a recent lesson on Wednesday know what happened in the valley of Hinnom. Here, there was idolatrous altars, and there were those who offered various incense to idolatrous things. Ahaz was right in the middle of it. And to make matters even worse, he burned his children. He offered his own 
flesh and blood as offers, offerings, if you please, to these idolatrous gods. And yet this man was in the ancestry of Jesus. We've looked at two who could be numbered among the bad. Let's try another one. This time, Amon. In 2 Kings 21, we have some details about this gentleman. In 2 Kings 21, some of these statements are in to be found. Beginning in verse 19 of that chapter. Amon was twenty and two years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years at Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulamath, the daughter of Haruz of Jotbah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. And he walked in the way that his father walked in, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers, and walked not in the way of the Lord." Now, it's one thing to notice that he chose to do what was idolatrous. But did you note the last part of that reading? He forsook the God of heaven. The Hebrew word suggests that he made a deliberate, overwhelming, personal choice. I am not going to follow God, it says. He chose to follow something else. One more time, though, he is in the ancestry of Jesus. Could I ask you to note at the bottom, I suppose the conclusion is obvious. Just because these people chose to do what was wrong, just because they chose to do what was evil, did not mean Jesus would choose to do what was evil. We've looked at some good, and we've looked at some bad in that genealogy. I would suggest that it's time to draw some lessons, some applications. Perhaps some of them are already obvious but let's cast a spotlight on them so that we can cement in our thinking something that is so very vital. It begins like this. Each and every person makes his or her own choice before the God of heaven. Your parents or mine may have chosen to do what was not right. That doesn't mean we have to make that same poor choice. By the same token, your parents or mine or your grandparents may have been the most wonderful Christian people on earth. But just because that's the way they were doesn't mean we'll be saved just because we're their grandson or granddaughter. Each and every one of us individually must make the choice of whether we want to serve God or not. If this list highlights anything, surely it, lists, it highlights that. Let's step through it like this. I have chosen some additional examples out of this listing that I hope will cement this point even more strongly. Consider with me this. Asa, as we've already learned, was a godly, upstanding man. He sought to purge evil out of Israel and gave commandment relative to serving God. May I ask you to notice, one of his sons was a man named Jehoshaphat. He too was a godly man. Here's an explicit Old Testament example of a godly father who had a godly son. Surely Asa must have been very proud of his son. And he thanked God, no doubt, many times for him. But let's look at another possibility. What about the man named Hezekiah? We talked about him a moment ago. And oh, how much good he did. 
He drew Israel in an attempt to reestablish godly worship. But may I ask you to notice, Hezekiah's son was a man named Manasseh. It could be argued that Manasseh was the sorriest king that Judah ever had. He reigned for 55 long years, and at least for the much of it, he did what was evil. He encouraged people to do what was evil. Now notice what we've seen. One example, a godly man had a godly son. A second example, a godly man had an ungodly son. Aren't we already seeing again the importance? Every person will have to give an answer for his own choices and his own direction. Look at the third example. This time it's Amon. I mentioned him a moment ago. What an evil man. As far as I can find, there was nothing good about his reign at all that could be said. But I would say at least one thing is worthy of note. Look at his son. He had a godly son. I've often wondered, do you suppose that Josiah saw the sorry life his dad lived and at least recognized there has to be something better than this. There has to be something more notable, more influential, and more meaningful. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But at the very least, we can say that although Amon was so wicked, he did have a godly son, a son who tried to lead Israel to the way it ought to go. One last example. What about an ungodly king who had an ungodly son? I chose Jehoram. We've already talked about him tonight. He was an ungodly king. And guess what? He had an ungodly son. Ahaziah too led the people in the way that they ought not go. He tried to influence them in ways that were not noteworthy and certainly not godly. One by one, as you've looked at every one of them, maybe the point is well now to be noted. Every single person... That includes every one of us, must make his or her own personal choice. I cannot get to heaven on what my daddy has done, what my mother has done, what my grandparents stood for. On the day of judgment, that will mean nothing for me. And by the same token, if my parents were choosing to do what was not right, if they were scoundrels to the highest order, that doesn't mean that I'll have to be lost on the day of judgment just because of them. I can make my own choice, and so can you. Look at some of these verses. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and following, Moses stood before the children of Israel and rather dramatically and rather personally said to them, I set before you this day good and evil, right and wrong. Choose the good. Choose life. But notice Moses said, it's your choice. On the one hand, if you choose right, there's life. If you choose poorly, there's death. If you choose rightly, there's blessing. If you choose poorly, there's cursing. But the choice is yours. Fully and wholly, it's yours. Don't you know Moses would have wished that he could have chosen for them? Because he knew what, was, what way was good, and he knew what way was right, and he knew which way would lead to the blessing from God. But he couldn't make that choice for them. 
By the same token, in Joshua 24, verse 15, as that greater, great leader was now reaching the end of his days, he told Israel, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had made the dedicated determination. He was going to serve the Lord. And he admonished Israel, Please choose God. But one more time, Joshua could not make that choice for them. They had to make it. Let's look at another one. In John 6, verse 67, Jesus had just preached a very hard lesson. Many disciples turned and walked no more with Him. Jesus turned to the apostles and He said this, Will you also go away? They had a choice to make. Either they would remain with the Lord in the midst of the hard lessons and in the midst of what He had taught them, or else they would side with culture, they would side with the easy road of the devil, but the choice was theirs. The Lord couldn't make them stay. Maybe one final example. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, that text we often call the great invitation. Come unto me, all you that labored are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord invites... He encourages, He beckons, but He won't make us follow Him. He won't force us to do it. Is it not fair to say, based on the Word of God, that each and every one of us, just as was true in the ancestry of Jesus, each and every one of us make our, must make our own personal choice. We must make our own decision. And as we make that decision... It leads us to close this slide with those observations. Romans 14, 12 says it like this, So then, every one of us must give account of himself to God. Isn't it then true that as we give thought to that day of judgment, you and I shall stand there and we'll give defense of and answer for the personal choices we've made. Note again, in this ancestry of Jesus, as far as we can tell based on the Word of God, many of those people left this earth in death and were lost. We have no record Jehoram ever repented. We have no record that Ahaz ever repented. If it's true that they died lost, can you imagine the faithful lot on the day of judgment? They were in the ancestry of Jesus and chose so poorly as to ultimately be lost. And yet, isn't it true, that same choice could well be yours and mine. Maybe a faithful father or faithful family, faithful ancestry for a few generations, and I choose poorly. Though they may well be saved, and we certainly hope so, then I'll be lost. I can't be saved just on my family name. Isn't it interesting in light of all those things? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says it like this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Each one of us. May I say then that there are a number of other very quick and brief lessons that I think it fair to mention based on this ancestry of Jesus.
It might well begin in this way. The very top idea. We must never, ever use our family as an excuse for being disobedient. It doesn't matter in many ways what family may have done in days gone by. That does not mean that I have to be disobedient. It may well make things challenging, no doubt about that. And it may well make things difficult, no doubt about that. It can often be a great burden, but it does not mean I have to go to hell because of what they have chosen to do. If this list teaches us anything, it teaches us we each make our own personal choices. We must never use our families as an excuse for disobeying God. Look at what else we might say. In Acts 5.29, here perhaps is the passage to which we can turn that cements this thinking. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now when Peter and John made mention of that, they were of course making thought of governmental choices and hardships in light of government commandments. But the principle is just as valid in other realms of life as well. Certainly we could even be quick to say, in our families, there can often be very challenging situations where perhaps there are those who have made very strong choices to do things not in keeping with the Word of God. We must not stand with them. Hear me now. If we stand with them, we're as guilty as they are. Romans 1, 29-32 tells us that much. We must always side with God. Again, may I say, in this listing we've studied tonight, it must have been terribly difficult for those who had ungodly parents to rise up and tear down what Dad built, to in fact help destroy the name Dad had built for himself. But these leaders did it because Dad was wrong. These leaders did it because Dad was misdirected and he did not do what was right. We need to be thankful for those men who had the nerve, the commitment, and the dedication to serve in the godly way they did against the influence of their family. And many examples out of that list fell into that category. Look at what else we might say. I mentioned earlier the lesson, we'd revisit four of those names. It's now time to do it. Did you notice that in that listing of Matthew chapter 1, Four individuals are listed. And it's interesting how that the inspired writer draws our attention to them. Those names were Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and, Bath and Bathsheba. And as those individuals are brought to our attention, our mind races back to the Old Testament scenes. In Tamar's case, that record is found in Genesis 38. In that chapter, here was a woman... Her daddy-in-law lied to her. Under that day and time, she had right to his next son. In fact, the two, son, the two older sons of Judah, remember, they died. And under that day and time, this woman had right to his next son. Judah promised that son to her, but yet when that boy got old enough, he didn't give the boy to her. She played the harlot. She had relations with Judah. The lineage of Jesus has that in it. Now that's something to think about. 
among other things, doesn't that say what God can make out of an otherwise bad situation? I might use that to say your family history and mine may not be the best in the world, and even if there are rascals and scoundrels and criminals in it, we can start a new branch that's faithful and true to God. Look at another one in the list, Rahab. Here was a Gentile woman. We understand well she was known in Joshua chapter 2 as the lady who in fact hid some spies and she was the one who lived in Jericho. And she was the one who among other things was known as a harlot. And yet Jesus, in fact, His ancestry came through her and you and I remember that the baby boy that was born to her was ultimately the one that would be the granddaddy of none other than King David. Isn't that amazing? That's astounding. Look at the third one, Ruth. We remember here was another Moabite woman. She, of course, was not in the land of Israel. She lived in a very distant place, and she didn't know seemingly anything about the God of heaven. And yet, she witnessed the faithful life of Naomi. She witnessed the dedication of her life, and she came to love her. And in fact, she went back to the land of Israel. And she would ultimately become a powerful woman in the history of that day and time. One more, Bathsheba. We remember that she had a husband named Uriah. And that man was a faithful man in many ways. And ultimately David killed him. But you and I might remember there in the scene of Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12, God even brought her in the very lineage in the sense that she fathered Solomon. And, she, and Solomon, of course, was the son of David, the next king of Israel. I've said all that to say that we've highlighted many things about this slide, many things about this ancestral line of Jesus. Let's summarize our lesson like this. Family trees, probably an interesting thing. It certainly is when it comes to Jesus. We have looked at the good and we've looked at the bad in that list. I'm sure as we reflect on the bad, we probably can be in a position to imagine how pitiful that bad was. But on the other hand, how noteworthy was the good. That highlights the personal choice each of us must make. May you and I individually choose to do what's right, always regardless if family pressure is against it or not, regardless if those who are influential upon us would side with us or not, may we always do what's right. May I say that even if there have been branches off that tree that have not been particularly good, start a faithful one. Bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and start a faithful branch that will be known for what's right. That'll be an upstanding and influential thing that'll bring much good for the cause of Jesus Christ our Lord. As we close this lesson tonight, Jesus' family tree has been the title. And one by one, I hope that we've been impressed with some lessons we can learn from it. If there's anyone in this audience tonight that would wish to render a public response to the gospel's invitation, we want to make that opportunity available. If you'd like to become a Christian, Realize it requires faith, it re requires repentance, it requires confession and also baptism. And if we could help you in that way tonight, 
it would be our delight. If you have been a faithful Christian, but as of the tonight, you're not. You know it. Others know it. And more importantly, Jesus knows it. Don't you realize you need to make that right? If you were to slip from this life tonight, you're not saved. You're not only on thin ice. The ice is non-existent. Why don't you make things right tonight? Why don't you, in fact, come with open arms and humility before the blessed Savior that loves you? He wants to forgive those sins. You must repent of them and confess them. And in the, under the banner of 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, He'll do it if you'll do your part. Tonight, if we could help anybody in your response to the gospel, we'd love to do it while together we stand and sing.